The title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. And uh, beginning with three words, sila, samadhi, panya, Pali words that uh, translate into English as virtue, concentration, or sometimes samadhi is translated as serenity, and panya, wisdom, or insight. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being essential and indispensable bases for his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom. These three form the three branches of mental development that are essential for all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of heart and mind are what lead one into vipassana or the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights, that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. Dukkha, the second, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences. And the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on towards liberation. In the Buddha's words, And as he often uh, did, he starts with a question, and then he himself goes on uh, to answer it. So, a question from the Buddha. If concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers, the mind is developed. And then he questions, If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers, all lust is abandoned. Then he asks another question. If insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers, wisdom is developed. And he asks, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers, all ignorance is abandoned. So concentration, samadhi or samatha, meditation. And vipassana, insight meditation. In particular alternating sequences, they are developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice, the process, and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and practices of sila deepen and mature within us, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on the deepest level, and what brings suffering, confusion, 
what brings dis-ease. Very intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us are our habits of attraction, aversion, worry, anxiety, and the identification with these states. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering, what in Pali is called samsara. These habits of mind also keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, or samadhi. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of really recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from waking up keep us from enlightenment. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Toronto, Switzerland, the forest refuge, Taos, the Amtrak train system are understood, are regarded as being without any substantial sustaining essence, without any separate, solid self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, We need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya. In speaking to Ananda in the Kimata Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha again asks a question and then proceeds to answer it. He asks, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And he answers, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, Concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of our huntship. And in speaking to uh, his monks directly, his monks and his nuns directly, about his own process and experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, insight, that enlightenment 
has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, we need to learn directly from our own experience and often from some of our most difficult experiences or what we might deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, maybe beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that purification is synonymous with the act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samadhi, concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily very often quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The Vesudhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a a number of very graphic Uh, metaphors to describe the process of the act of concentration. And I'd like to share just a couple of these metaphors with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives toward the flower, stops and buzzes above it, getting to know it, we could say before diving into it, before absorbing into it. A metaphor for preliminary access and absorption concentration. Another metaphor offered in the Visuddhimagga that I particularly uh, relate to uh, because of my own experience in making pottery, is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused attention of body and mind. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which is the object of attention, But this other hand is moving back and forth and up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. Quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, 
moving into deeper states of samadhi, moving into the jhana states. The power of a clear, relaxed, focused mind, a concentrated mind. It brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again and again. Restimulates the energy and the effort that's needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, and calm. It can be quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the beautiful and purifying current of samadhi, of concentration, I think it would uh, be helpful for us to explore and to learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, and peace, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, can't grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome and wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the breath, and you're anxious, you're worried during the process, this will prevent you from being calm and joyful. Worry enslaves us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say, even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. clarity of intention and seeing, knowing when the attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is intended is really the first and maybe even the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice. As we all know, the mind can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions. Thinking that whatever it is, is very, very important. During a three-month concentration jhana retreat that I uh, sat with a pawoxido, I had such an experience. For the first week or so of the retreat, <clears throat> each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea, <laughs> taking two or three different uh, loose teas and then mixing them all together in a tea ball an important and seemingly necessary treat that I 
needed that I wanted. So after about a week of doing this, I noticed a box of tea bags of one of the same kinds of tea that I was putting into my mix. And this a box was sitting on the counter right in front of me under the jars of loose tea that I had been using. It, of course, had been sitting there every day, but I hadn't noticed it. I hadn't paid any attention uh, to it up until that day. So the thought came, do I really need this? Is all this a fancy tea preparation and seemingly need, is this really important? And the answer came internally, no. No, it's not important at all. It's merely a habitual distraction. So, I made a, a simple cup of tea with a tea bag. And I enjoyed it. <laughs> and what happened after this was what was really important. Quite spontaneously, uh, at times throughout the rest of the uh, three months of practice, the question, is this really important, would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no, no, this really isn't important. And I would just simply then let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the heart and the mind are constantly being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of Concentration in jhana is described as the purification of the mind. Samatha, samadhi, or the development of calm and concentration seriously weakens all of the hindrances, seriously weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, or bliss, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when these clearly manifest, the hindrances, these unwholesome mind states, are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as profoundly weakened in the long term particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, if one has the inclination towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a bit of a look now uh, at how the different factors of a deep concentration quite specifically Uh, address different states of mind and body, the different states of mind and body that hinder the development of practice, that hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. 
calm and tranquility. Free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind then a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object, called vitaka in Pali. Establishing the mind, the attention on the object, such as the breath, this eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustaining attention on the object in Pali called vichara. This eliminates uncertainty, eliminates doubt. The deeply concentrated state of joyful zest, bright happiness, elation in the mind, resulting from the purity of mind, the purity of the heart, called piti in Pali. This brings a delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention. Again, such as the breath. With the development process of deep concentration. Or with the first jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration. And at this point, all forms of ill will are completely inhibited. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, sweet, easeful happiness, sukha in Pali, which is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a, a blissful, contented mental feeling. This occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration. And then much more profoundly in the third jhana. And then completely, temporarily eliminating restlessness, agitation, regret, worry. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of one-pointed focus, the one-pointed focus of a deep concentration, igagata in Pali. Again, occurring to varying degrees during the development stage, the development of deepening concentration. And then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during the absorption in the fourth jhana. It's the experience of absolute centeredness, balance, equanimity. And it eliminates, at that point, sensuous desire for anything. As samadhi concentration develops and moves along and the imperfections, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the mind, the natural purity of the heart, when at least some of the imperfections have been clearly let go of, abandoned and relinquished, At that time, one truly knows and gains a much fuller and much deeper confidence, confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And this is a great benefit. When this confidence arises, the mind and heart also often experience great inspiration enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to one's own particular teacher. 
as awakening beings. When we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become quite tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness, that are connected with joy, are removed. They disappear in the calm and in the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. And on and on it goes. At this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. The nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and serve our insight practice. The first of these is what is called momentary concentration. This is the development and growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another the development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or level of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. The mind is quite malleable with access concentration. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very, very helpful and useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that's completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, 
It's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during that time, the mind is temporarily totally purified of all unwholesome states of mind. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind and body are profoundly weakened in the long run, though not totally, finally eliminated. It's only through vipassana, only through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states are totally eliminated. The development of samadhi will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, attachment, and identification. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that is not everyone's inclination or interest and not absolutely necessary for a profound and potentially liberating vipassana or insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet, to wholeheartedly absorb into experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of whatever's taking place. But with no pondering, no thinking about what's occurring. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story about you, uh, with you, <laughs> not about you, about the Buddha. <laughs> uh, about two significant uh, times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices, and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart, of mind, that he was seeking. It's said that the Bodhisatta, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture, comfortably and quietly sitting under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that uh, children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. 
He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And notice the flash and sparkling of the sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men. He also clearly heard the beautiful bird song, bird sound of the birds, the sound of the birds, the songs of the birds, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects, the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him. And in his heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he sat silently and quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking this all in without prejudice or attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure and happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assurance that this was, in fact, the path to liberation and resolves to sit quietly and press forward in a deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his evaluation of pleasure, in that it was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of austerities. At that most important point of turning, in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, let go of, relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or trying to live through them or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships 
or by struggling, by trying really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices, or by trying to lose one's self in physical and mental self-created hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to or chosen to engage in mental fantasies, situations, activities, relationships that created hardship or a certain flavor of austerity in your life, and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity, and in your own way doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that this would somehow bring a sustaining joy happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially a certain kind of strength can be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, the light of awakening, can never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart that is secluded, that's free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and a necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening, and that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion that in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and the ease of a heart, of a mind that's liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva had the insight that deep concentration was a way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed in the Majjhima Nikaya, in his greater discourse to Saka, he says, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I am not afraid of that pleasure, since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And the Buddha goes on to tell Saka that after eating some solid food and regaining his strength and being secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, that he entered into the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, as he explained to Saka, he said, but such pleasant feeling 
that arose in my mind, in me, did not invade my mind and remain. And the Buddha goes on in this same sutta, telling Saka, Sakaka, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. He tells Saka that he systematically then attained each of the liberating knowledges one by one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that a young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising, changing, passing, coming and going. No different in those moments from anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with nothing to cling to, nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind uh, made up, often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be or how it isn't supposed to be. What's good or what's bad. What we absolutely, definitely know is true or isn't true. And we so often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice. a mind made up, a mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, what prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier this evening, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and the practice of virtue, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of vipassana, the teaching and practice of insight, wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life, carry us to the other side to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart, an undisturbed mind. The current of samadhi, the development of concentration, including the states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, 
are beautiful, potentially healing, and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it is ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the true nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years later after this story that uh, I've shared took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and very powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest and hold yourself within your practice with a deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya, and without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem from. And I'd like to uh, close the talk <clears throat> with a Mary, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> a Mary Oliver poem uh, that speaks to this evening's topic in her um, quite unique Uh, and beautiful way, and in relationship to um, this evening's topic, in a somewhat oblique and yet uh, I find quite moving way. And this poem she calls Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain, rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. It's spring. It's morning. Are there trees near you? And does your soul need comforting? Quick, quick, then open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song, 
may already be drifting away. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.